It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and your wallet. I want you to learn ideas from me so you can save more and spend less and don't let anyone ever rip you off. Coming up in just a few minutes, how in the world do you get by on half a million dollars a year? Just wait till you hear today's Clark Rageous moment. It's, it's really weird. And coming up later... You know, a lot of older family members have safe deposit boxes. There's something you need to know that may make you want to go clean out that safety deposit box right away. So uh, businesses that are facing a lot of disruption and turmoil, prescription drugs are one of those. The Trump administration has tried several efforts to rein in prescription drug prices and has found it as difficult to do so as it was for the prior Obama administration and the prior George W. Bush administration. It's very, very difficult to get prescription drug prices under control. You know, we're in such an odd circumstance that we have the most expensive prescription drug prices in the world. And anywhere else you go in the world, prescription drugs are amazingly cheaper than they are in the U.S., particularly for brand names. But that is what our story has been. And there have been terrible, terrible events like what happened with insulin for diabetics, what happened with EpiPens for people who are subject to anaphylactic shock, what's happened to people with particular cancers, where what are known as orphan drugs, those that are long past when they had any intellectual property protection on them, but um, a private equity firm will buy the sole manufacturer of it and then raise the cost of that drug thousands of percent. I mean, we've got some unfinished business with prescription drugs. My belief, though, is we are at the peak of something that's going to get better on pricing. And I don't base that on uh, being just falsely optimistic. There are specific circumstances that lead me that way. There are a lot of economic forces in the U.S. with an aging population that are going to bring economic power to play with various organizations, including businesses and government, doing what they can to get the price of meds down. And the power of the pharmaceutical manufacturers will be overrun by the economic interests of others in the nation as a whole to do something about pricing. And the way we get meds is going to change. You know, right now, overwhelmingly, people get their medicines the way they would have gotten them 50 years ago, they have a prescription from a doctor, they go into a pharmacy, and they fill that prescription at a physical pharmacy. And I think that that is maybe how it's been, but not how it will be. And how you pay for meds will go through continuous change. I'm particularly interested in doctors who've put in those dispensing machines for routine meds right in their own offices where you can 
essentially buy the meds you need for routine things out of a vending machine. You know, you're not going to be able to get a prescription med without a prescription because you're in that doctor's office. I'm really impressed with what GoodRx has done with negotiating these lower prices on so many medicines, and you're easily able to comparison shop as the price difference can be so huge from one pharmacy to another on the same prescription, the same med, and up till this point, you didn't really know, but now thanks to the portal of GoodRx, you can see the price differences from place to place and use the discount that's available through GoodRx. You don't have to pay for it. You just use GoodRx.com. And I'm impressed how many doctor's offices now will have something posted about check the price of the meds that you need on GoodRx. And I think that's great. The next wave, though, I believe is going to be online sellers. And I'm not the Lone Ranger on that. Ever since Amazon decided to buy into the prescription drug business, dispensing business, people have expected that to become a big play. So far it hasn't. But I think that's going to come from a number of different directions that there will be, in fact, incentives for you with a lot of employer-provided plans that you fill your medicines over the internet. And there are going to be a number of ways that you're going to be able to lower costs. But remember my key rule. The core to lowering the cost of the prescription drugs you take is by being prepared when you see your doctor. And at the time you see him or her or a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant, that you specifically proactively ask if, as they're writing a script, if they can write one of these for that kind of illness rather than the one they're writing because you know those are cheaper. How would you know those are cheaper? The easiest way is at walmart.com where you can see their prices on meds that are so inexpensive they can dispense them to you for as little as $4 for a 30-day supply. James joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, James. Hi, how are you? Great, thank you, James. So you are saving a massive percent of your pay in your employer 401k. Is that right? I guess. I don't know. I've always saved it much, or 16%. That's considered massive. Yes, that's great, because the average American today is saving 3%, 3 cents of each dollar they make. Oh, wow. Overall, not just in 401ks, you're saving 16% or 16 cents out of every dollar just in your 401k in addition to whatever else you're doing. So that, yes, that's something that you should have great pride in. What age were you when you became focused on saving money this way? 19. Been with my company 17 years, so 19. So wait a minute. At 19, you started saving for retirement? Uh, yes. My father just told me to go ahead and put it in there, and I wouldn't notice it, which pretty much true. So. That is great. Well, I, I think this is wonderful. So I'm curious what it is you're calling to ask me, because it sounds like you're teaching others as I listen to you. Um, well, I have, like I said, 16%. My company 
was just bought out, so they've changed a bit how they match. Now they only match up to 6%, uh, 100% up to 6% of what I put in. And I didn't know my wife wanted was thinking that I should lower it just to 6% now. Um, I respectfully disagree with your wife. And even though okay. I always say your wife is always right, in this case I'd say uh, she's not. <laughs> okay. Because that's what it, I was assuming. I just wanted to. Yeah, because if you're saving sixteen percent, your employer's throwing in another six. You're saving twenty-two cents of each dollar you make effectively, and the yeah. benefit of that is you're creating enormous financial strength and independence for yourself. And it means that when you choose to retire, you will have the choice of retiring earlier than you might have otherwise or having a very, very comfortable retirement at the time you do retire. So I'm curious, your wife wanting you to cut back from $0.16 on the dollar to $0.06 on the dollar, what does she think that you should be doing with that other $0.10? Help pay off other debt that we have, cars, house. All right, so... Pay this off quicker. All right, so I would say that having car loans is never fun Mm -hmm. your car loan interest rates are probably pretty good though tell me about your car loans i have two cars one has 2700 left on it and the other one has 15,000 left on it so obviously the 2700 doesn't matter because it'll be paid off pretty quickly the 15,000 what interest rate does that car loan carry I have no idea. <laughs> All right, so this is an assignment for you. Most mm-hmm. often what I'd want you to do with a vehicle loan is if your vehicle loan interest rate is not a good one, I'd like you to, if you're not already, join a credit union. If you are a member of one, you can already do this. Go ahead and refi that car loan interest rate because if your credit score is good, you may well be able to get that rate down to 2 point something percent. Okay. And so that would be the move there. But that doesn't sound like uh, any reason to reduce your 401k contribution. Let's talk your mortgage loan. Tell me about it. Uh, my wife really deals with all the financials. Uh, I just know we have about 150 left on our mortgage. And how if long have you like been in this home? Six years. Okay. So six years ago, the mortgage interest rates were probably really good. Yeah. So you I know re- we have a real low rate. I know um, she said it's no use of trying to refinance because I don't think we're going to get anything as low as we had. So if have. it is if it is an extremely low rate, in, likely in the low threes from six years ago, then keep paying as agreed, and mm-hmm. there'd be no need for you to rush to pay that off. And putting money in your employer-provided 401k would be great. I have one last question for you. What is she doing to save for retirement? Um, She has a Roth Roth IRA. She runs her own speech practice. And she just doesn't um, currently is not in a situation to really put any into it. So we're kind of dependent on mine right now. Okay. All right. So I'd say if if there was any priority as money becomes more available, it would be her putting her effort into adding additional money to a Roth IRA because that's where I think uh, the two of you should be about financially. 
the debts you have seem not out of control, and the way you're handling your money seems very good for the future. I'd like for her, though, to have some retirement money in her name, too. Iona is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Is that how I say your name, Iona? Iona, which way do I say it? Um, it's Iana. Iana. Oh, yeah. come on. I tried two, and I still got them both wrong. <laughs> Sorry, Iana. No way. Well, how can I serve you, Iana? Hi. Um, well, I listen to your podcast and stuff a lot of times, and I enjoy it. And I am about to try to get my first credit card because I'm in college. I'm a sophomore, and I don't know what a good credit card for me would be or where I would look. I mean, I tried to go to my credit union, but they told me I didn't earn enough as income per month to get their credit card. Are you a full-time college student? Yeah, that's starting fall. So if you're a full-time college student, you are eligible for one of the college student credit cards that um, Discover is the most aggressive in that market. American Express is... And some of the big banks are aggressive with student credit cards. And for people who are from military families, USAA does a good job in issuing cards to college students. But it's much easier for a college student to get a credit card than someone your age who is not a full-time college student. <laughs> really didn't know that. Yeah, so you should be able, as long is do you know if you have a credit report on you? Are there any active um, credit files with Equifax, TransUnion, Experian? I honestly don't have a, any type of credit. I just want to find a best way to get my credit started and, you know, so I can get good loans and such. All right. So if you have no, what's known as a thin or no file, you haven't borrowed any student loans or anything like None. that? None. I'm going to college, like, all scholarships. All right, so if there's a family member who would add you as an authorized user on one of their credit cards, make sure they don't give you the plastic so you could not spend any money, but just yeah. so you would, that would help you establish a credit identity, then you're going to be able to get one of these student cards. Um, I don't have a family that would do that. They're, all their credit is pretty horrible. They okay. only have credit cards. <laughs> All right. Then I'd like you to try the pedal card. P-E-T-A-L card.com. Pedal card.com. Uh-huh. And the pedal card would be the best alternative in the situation you describe. But if pedal card doesn't want you, go back to the credit. Well, pedal card probably will want you. And it's not a secured card. But if for some reason you don't qualify for pedal card, go back to the credit union and see if they will do what's known as a fresh start card for you, where you deposit money in the credit union and your initial credit line on a Visa or MasterCard is controlled by that. One of these things is going to work. Pedal card, P-E-T-A-L again, pedalcard.com is my best bet for you. Today's Clark Rageous moment is something that you'd think is an urban legend, but there was a story in Market Watch about a couple that reached out for financial help or financial guidance because they're making $500,000 a year as a couple, 
and they're not making ends meet. They're spending more than what they're earning each month. And MarketWatch has a budget on the couple, and they're spending a lot, a lot, a lot of money on things that are more than they need to spend, and that's not a judgment about them, but they could easily not only live on that 500000 but be saving for the future a huge amount of money. But the expenses they have are crazy. As your income goes up, you have to be so careful that your spending doesn't go up in tandem, what economists call the marginal propensity to consume. If you're not good at controlling your impulses and your wants, no matter what you make, you can end up in a financial hole. So glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show where it's all about you and that wallet. I want you to learn ideas from me so you can save more and spend less and don't let anyone ever rip you off. Many years ago, something I haven't talked about in at least a decade, my mom, who has been deceased for a while but went through a significant period of dementia the last 15 years of her life, and like with dementia, things got steadily worse over time, we as family members got more and more involved in all the moving parts of her life, including her finances. And at one point, we found out about a safe deposit box. And so we took mom to go see the contents of the safe deposit box and got to the bank, and this was last decade when there were all the problems going on with the banks, the box was not there. The bank had changed hands, had been, uh, you know, one of the banks had gone bust and all that, and the things went into oblivion. And I talked about at that time, in the midst of all the bank failures, that safe deposit boxes were not safe at all. Well, fast forward a decade, actually more, and now I need to share with you that safe deposit boxes are even more unsafe than they were in the turmoil of banks going bust. Because banks have changed the terms and conditions when you renew safe deposit boxes, to where they have essentially no liability if the items in a safe deposit box go missing or stolen by a bank employee or anything like that, or a branch closes and the stuff in the safe deposit boxes goes missing. And I saw a New York Times story that was really disturbing about how the banks have wash their hands of this. And the federal regulators and state regulators don't do anything at all about the fact that things are disappearing from boxes. The New York Times story was just absolutely shocking about people going in and to get stuff out of their safety deposit box and by their telling, jewelry, family heirlooms, valuable um, antiques, collectibles, missing, gone, and the banks just say, tough. 
The reality is the situation is so bad and how the banks treat you so horrible that if you have items of value, I know this is crazy, but you need to have your own fire safe in your home. Isn't that weird? I mean, the whole idea of safe deposit boxes was to make sure these possessions that were precious to you would be safe. But as the banks no longer take their responsibilities to customers seriously and there's no cop on the beat for them, you got to know that having a safe deposit box at a bank is a really risky venture. Joe joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Joe. Hello, Clark. Thanks for uh, sharing your expertise with all of us. Absolutely, Joe. How can I serve you today? Well, uh, I'll admit my wife and I are very fortunate. Uh, I'm able to contribute the full amount to my 401k here. We both have backdoor Roth IRAs that we max out. Uh, we also have one rental property that's, that's paid for. It used to be our home. And we're looking to save some additional money and trying to figure out if it's better to you know, take that money and invest it in uh, low-cost index funds or save that money up and buy additional rental properties. Is there a tool or a, a website that can help us make the best decision? No, it really is more about you. So if you take money and put it in index funds, you know, you, the tax treatment's very favorable for index funds. And then the other thing is that money, so once you leave it in a year or longer, you get the the good capital gains tax treatment when you sell, and it's money that you can draw on as you wish. But it's not it doesn't diversify you away from what you're already doing, maxing out your 401ks, doing the backdoor Roth IRAs. You got a lot of money invested in various stock market activities. So the advantage of a rental property is that it diversifies you and it creates some additional financial security and doesn't have as many of your eggs all in one basket. But they're not at all similar. You know why? Uh, why? Because your index funds don't require any management from you. There's no toilets you have to fix. There's no tenant you have to go after for not paying rent. You don't have to deal with a vacant property that you don't have to do showings for and all that. I mean, one thing is running your own little side business. The other is basically set it and forget it. Right. So that's really more about you and for you to decide. If you already have a rental property, you know what's involved with that. And if you're happy with that, you don't mind it, or a lot of people enjoy it, um, then buying another rental property gives you more diversification with your money. In a lot of the country, though, right now, Joe, it's hard to find rental properties that are going to be cash flow positive in the early years because of the run-up in values. So you're going to have to work it pretty hard to find a property that meets the baseline numbers that most real estate investors use, which is the rent you generate per month has to be equal to 1% or more 
of the value of the property. That's uh, great advice, and that's a great, uh, I guess, rule of thumb to use when we're looking for properties. Yeah, and, and you know, people that are real estate investors now who've been buying real estate the last decade are finding it really hard to buy new properties right now that will meet the 1% rule. Uh, you know, Joel of our crew has five doors now, five rental properties. Yeah, that's right. And you look, how many times a day do you look at what's available? You know, I'm not looking as much these days because it is so much harder to find a good deal. But yeah, typically I was looking, you know, a few times a week. And right now, no matter where you look, when you look, you can't find something that the math works, right? Yeah, for me, well, for, for me adding more right now, it's just like not something I'm ready to do. It's, it's a lot of work. And so, like you said, index funds, so much easier. <laughs> but, uh, but then also it is so much harder to find a deal. So I'm just not really out there looking that much. And I don't, haven't really talked about it, but I have been, um, uh, you know, looking at the numbers of rent I can earn at properties and what those properties are worth. I've actually been a seller, not a buyer of late. And the number of properties I have going down, 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 as I bought so many properties during the real estate bust last decade, and now I'm shedding properties as the selling prices have moved up quicker than what rental income has moved up. And I've decided, you know what, this is a good time for me to reduce my portfolio of properties. Adrian is with us on the Clark Howard Show. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good. How can I serve you today? Um, I had a question that has to do with being in graduate school and taking out loans versus using savings. So I'm in a four-year program and I'm halfway through and I've been taking out some loans the past couple of years and then also using savings that my husband and I have. Um, but going forward, we're trying to figure out how much we should continue dipping into savings versus getting out loans because we're planning on moving out to Colorado in a couple of years and we know the housing market there is more expensive and my husband will also be going into a graduate program himself so we will need money for that as well. So this is a tough dilemma and I'm going to lay out some of the choices. If you're doing a four-year program, are you going to be a PhD or something like that? Uh, vet. I'm in vet school. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. So that, I, I got to tell you, this is something I'm going to make some doctors angry, but <laughs> it's weird how much better the service and customer service is in veterinary medicine for the customers who bring in their pets than it is in medicine when we as customers go as a patient. Right. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, I think a lot of a lot of us just love animals, so it kind of naturally just natural, just be nice and just want to explain what's going on. <laughs> but is it like pediatrics, where you like the kids more than you like the, the parents? Is yeah, like- a lot of vets are people who could be doctors, but I guess don't like humans enough, so <laughs> chose animals. Uh, that's funny. All right, so you're going to have a good income stream when you get out of school. Hopefully. Yeah. So. The cost of borrowing for graduate school right now is pretty high. The rates have come down for this year, third year, but you're still looking at interest rates, gosh, is it 6.05? What's the rates you're being quoted right now 
on uh, loans I, for your I third year? I have to year? look at what this year. Last year it was 6.6. Okay, it's it's lower this year. Yeah. As, as interest rates reset every summer, but mm-hmm. it's not low. But it is six. It's six something. Yeah, so if you're paying, um, oh, here it is. I was wrong. It's 6.08, not 6.05. Okay. So I'm a terrible person, aren't I? Yes, it's so off. (laughs) Three basis points off. All right. So paying 6.08% versus money you have in savings that you're earning 2% approximately if Mm -hmm. you're even an online bank, this is a tough call because you would erode the money you have for a down payment on a house in Colorado Mm -hmm. if you spend that money. But at the same time, you're negative four points on every dollar that you would borrow for grad school, for veterinary medicine school. So this is one that defies having an easy, simple answer. So okay, so I, here's how I would make the or here's how I'd make the decision. Mm-hmm. Money you have in savings, don't take it below five percent of what you're going to have to have for a house. So let's say okay. you're looking at a house in Colorado, just for argument's sake. Let's say it's four hundred thousand, just to use a simple number. Sure, you would want to make sure you had. $20,000 that you did not touch in savings. Mm-hmm. Okay. But above that amount, you would be better off spending from your savings than you would be borrowing at 6.08%. Okay. Would another option be to put some of that money into investments that's going to get higher rates? You don't have back? enough years for investments to work. When you go into investing... You really need a time window of seven years or longer. Okay. And you don't have that time. Sure. So you you have to be a saver, mm-hmm. not an investor with money that you're going to have going towards a house in the next few years. Right. And that's why you want to make sure you have enough for to get into that house. But other than that, um, giving up 2% interest to save paying 6% is a really good choice. Okay. And if the economy, I mean, I'm going to say something so foolish, but if the trend lines continue that the economy slows, then interest rates for your fourth year of veterinary medicine school will probably be lower than what they are now, but unlikely to be higher than they are now. Jeffrey joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Jeffrey. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks, Clark. Jeffrey, you have a question that is uh, really cool about an option your employer offers you when you're traveling on company business, and you're trying to figure out an either-or. So let's see if I can help. Yeah, so just to start off, I just wanted to thank you. I went to pharmacy school, and I watched uh, you on television and learned a lot of great things. And over the years, I've been continuing to do the same. This was back in the early 2000s when I graduated, so... So and you um you went into a profession where the work hours are very difficult but the pay has been very good for pharmacists in recent years. Yeah, it has been. So I guess to my question, um so when the company is paying, I'm just curious uh for a fly versus drive transportation, 
Um, I'm curious, you know, when you assume a 58 cents a mile reimbursement, just wondering what you would do, Clark, on a uh, drive versus fly. You know, there's a lot of variables in going into making that decision. Um, but just from a dollars and cents perspective. Yeah. I'm so curious. the 58 cents you're talking about, that's what the IRS allows an employer to reimburse you without you being uh, taxed in any way for the mileage reimbursement. And so the question really comes to whether you have an older depreciated car or a, a newer or expensive car. Because the cost of operating a vehicle a mile can actually be higher than the 58 cents if you have a fancy car, particularly a newer one. What are you driving these days? Well, like a lot of Vermonters where I live now, I drive a Subaru Forester. Uh, isn't that required that Vermont will not issue you a state plate for your vehicle if it's not a Subaru? Kind of seems that way. It does, doesn't it? So uh, what model year Forester do you have, did you say? It's a 2016. So that may be at a point where there's enough depreciation you've given up on it. Now the 2020s are appearing on dealer lots that you you may do okay at 58 cents a mile driving your own vehicle. How long are you likely to keep the Forester moving forward? Well, I have a Volvo that's a 2005 and uh, still still going strong, and so we tend to keep my cars. Then you're great doing the 58 cents because the depreciation curve is going to keep um, leveling out as you put additional years on the vehicle. And since you're someone who intends to keep a vehicle on the road a long time, take the 58 cents. Awesome. Thank you very much, Clark. All right. Have a great day. How good a skier are you? Well, that's why I moved to Vermont. I grew up in Florida, but, uh, you know, I needed to find my way to some mountains, and so it's fantastic. That is great. A little cold for me, though. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.